0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of From All Sides, a podcast by Cube Group, where we explore the strategic, organisational and human sides of the major issues facing public value organisations in the current world, and particularly the current COVID-19 crisis. Our current series focuses on the different ways this global pandemic impacts public service leaders and their organisations. We discuss the ways we can be better prepared to lead Australia as response moves into recovery. More information on each episode is on our website, cubegroup.com.au. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, today is April 27th, 2021. We're now uh, more than four months since the last of the most significant restrictions on the lives and activities of Australians were lifted. In most respects, recovery and returning to some sense of normality as well progressed and Very positively, some of the recent economic news is showing a swift recovery. In fact, in many ways, the public conversation has shifted towards skill shortages in some sectors, especially as governments embark on major infrastructure programs, which gives a sense of the health of the economic recovery. Meanwhile, around the world, we watch on with great sadness as places like Brazil and and now India experience devastating waves of the pandemic. The level of uh, death and suffering in those places are a stark reminder to us of how very real the pandemic continues to be around the world. Closer to home, occasional short-term lockdowns, most recently in Perth, continue to highlight how vulnerable we are until we have a fully vaccinated population. Australia's vaccination program is progressing more slowly than we'd first hoped. Supply shortages and logistical challenges have left us well behind our initial targets. However, the experience of those countries that have substantially advanced their vaccination campaigns most notably Israel, but also the US and the UK, is demonstrating the effectiveness of the vaccine in dramatically reducing the threat posed by COVID-19. Confidence that the worst of the pandemic, for Australia at least, is behind us, continues to grow. For many public purpose leaders, questions are shifting to what's next? What will be the lasting impact of the pandemic? And what does it mean for the services and investments that we need to continue to deliver into the future? To help us grapple with that, our guest today is Simon Kunsten-Maha. Simon is from the Demographics Group. The Demographics Group help private and public organizations interpret demographic and social change and what it means for their businesses. I'd strongly encourage listeners to find Simon on LinkedIn or whatever social platform you like. Simon and his team are constantly engaged in business advisory services, speaking and other commentary on all the social trends that matter. Uh, All of it's data-driven and makes great sense of the array of data and information that is currently available for public purpose decision makers to use. Uh, Their website is tdgp.com.au. Simon, welcome. Thanks for being a part of this conversation.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Can we start with just hearing a bit about where you are at the moment? Where is your remote working setup and how have you found it?
1: Well, I've been uh, working from my study, as pretty much everyone has, I guess, for the last year and a bit. That said, not much has changed for us. Our little company, the Demographics Group, I think... Before the pandemic, you would have probably gone to the office two or three days per week. So we all had decent working from home setups, you know, long before they were sold out during the pandemic. I had a standing desk and monitors and everything. So that uh, all worked well. And now even that the pandemic in Australia for now at least is over, we're not going back to the office. It's just too convenient. For a while, at the start of 2021, we said we should probably go and meet in the office uh, once per month. And after we've done this once or twice, we figured every month is a bit much. <laughs> so we so we keep this to an absolute minimum. But that said, we do have the occasional coffee catch-ups, you know, where we just meet in the geographical uh, center of our team uh, within Melbourne and we just go to a random cafe and do essentially the creative brainstorming element of the job there.
0: We're really delighted to be able to have this conversation with you, particularly at this point of such a point of transition and change, disruption, to think a bit about what the changing demographics, the economy, and everything else will mean. Why is this different? Is this different? Australia's had some significant shifts in our economy and our demographics before. Is this different, or why is this different, and in what way?
1: Uh, It's massively different to any crisis that we had in what we can call living memory. If you remember the GFC and you remember the very shocking, pessimistic narratives that were written and talked about at the GFC, in Australia, the GFC was a phase of moderate growth instead of high growth. So that always raised the question for decades to speak really What happens in Australia if there is really a big major crisis that shakes everything up? How are we going to handle this? And so far, we seem to have been handling the pandemic better than most countries, which, of course, is largely due to our geography. Not just are we an island that is pretty easily closed off from the rest of the world. Any island uh, really fits this category. But we also split our population across only five cities, essentially. Over two-thirds of the population lives in just five cities. So if you get just the management of five cities correct. You got it sorted out. There are all types of problems that come from having your population highly concentrated in just five cities. But this time around, our weakness, if you will, actually served us extremely well.
0: So do you think this might be another example of the lucky country? Is this a time in which the rest of the world goes into a GFC shock and we ride through it? Or or actually, do you think this has a profound moment of change for Australia as well?
1: It's definitely the lucky country argument. We can definitely run this again. It's also quite a nice time Time right now to think back to the 1960s when Geoffrey Blaney wrote about the tyranny of distance, that Australia essentially is too far away from all the good, delicious global economic growth that's occurring. And so the good growth arrives in Australia with a bit of a delay, if you will. This time around, it's really the blessing of distance. This is really what set us apart that and, of course, you know, different trends in terms of we actually got the pandemic management right by fairly quickly, fairly early on understanding that the hard lockdowns seemed to work really well, at least in our specific geographical environment. So for now, this pandemic isn't over, even though in Australia we might think this as of April 2021. Globally, we still see record numbers every day. So globally, this thing isn't over and a pandemic isn't over anywhere before it is over everywhere.
0: What's the best way for our listeners to understand this? I know there's some conversation about a a V-shaped recovery. You know, we've frozen ourselves in time and now we're defrosting back into a new normal. Others are emphasising the newness of that normal to say there is no going back to normal. We're actually going back to a a new future. How do you understand it? Do you see this as a step change moment in the way that our society and economy sort of operates? Or do you see this as being much more of a sort of a snapback return to mostly back to normal?
1: Well, so strictly speaking, the economic V-shaped recovery so far is actually working out. That's good news. The economic recovery seems to work. Wonderful. That's great news. From a uh, societal perspective, things will not go back to normal. That said, plenty of things will go back to normal. But there are certain changes that happened in Australia that will not be undone afterwards. Remember that at the last two, three censuses, we always had around four, four and a half percent of the workforce working from home on census day. During the pandemic, uh, during the height of the lockdowns, the best estimates that we have are 40 to 50 percent of all workers worked from home. If uh, later this year we run the Australian census again, the numbers won't be at 50 percent again, but they will be much, much higher than four or five percent. So this means that once workers don't need to go into one of what is essentially only one of five CBD central business districts across Australia, that shapes the way cities function. We really are at a turning point in the way that we interact with the urban form and we are reshaping the urban form at the moment. The obvious example is, of course, well, if people don't go to the CBD every single day to work, we take cars off the road, traffic load will get easier, but we put more activity into suburbia where people actually live into the local neighborhoods. That means that the coffees that you consumed in a CBD cafe, either consuming them at your local neighborhood coffee shop or you're consuming them at your kitchen counter. That means there is a different a shift in sales channel for coffee. That also is true for many, many other things. So that means that all of a sudden we become a more localized, decentralized Australia, at least within the capital cities, because people will probably still, to a large degree, want to be in commuting distance to the CBD. So that's it. That sounds very much like a pandemic-only narrative that is occurring, which is uh, definitely supercharged. the pandemic but just demographically speaking we have an even larger megatrend happening which is the coming of age of the millennial generation meaning the millennials who are the biggest procrastinators who have ever walked the australian continent who invented the gap year who uh, went to university for just one more degree who partnered up later in life who had kids for later in life who purchased a home later in life they're doing all those standard family formation things right now this means you have the cohort of seven million millennials that are currently living in the inner suburbs of Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, in one and two bedroom apartments, you have this cohort all of a sudden slowly adding 1.7 kids to the family. They all of a sudden need a Zoom room, a separate room with a door to keep their kids and the cats out of the meeting. That means this big generation needs three, needs four bedrooms. So people will need to go to wherever three and four bedroom dwellings are available. And this isn't the inner city. This probably isn't even for most the middle suburbs. This is suburbia. This is the urban fringe. This is regional Australia. The millennial, just the demographic profile of the millennials being such a specifically large cohort and the trend from COVID hitting, uh, you know, supercharging the working from home movement. That will reshape our cities and there's no way back. And even if we come up with a hybrid work model, on every given day when you wake up at 6am and you should get ready, get dressed, put up up, makeup in order to get to the CBD to your job, or you could sleep in for one more hour. It's anybody's guess how you will decide on that day.
0: I know for some people we uh, work with, possibly listening here, have been grappling for years with the booming outer suburban growth corridors. You think think about Melbourne, we're talking that the north and and the west and the southeast before that. Other states and territories have other growth corridors. Those have been huge social and public infrastructure challenges. But then on the other hand, I wonder whether part of those challenges comes from the, the size of the commute that's usually associated with that, whereas some of this potentially working from home trend alleviates some of that. Is it a positive or a negative trend? Where do you see the pain points from from that? That
1: certainly certainly is exactly what happened, is that in Melbourne, you you spoke about Melbourne as an example, Melbourne over the last decade added one Adelaide to the city. This is well over 100,000 people every single year for a decade. That means if a city grows at a breakneck pace, you just build housing wherever you can. And the easiest way to build housing at scale is to bulldoze land you know, green on greenfield sites and you put up a house and land packages and in the CBD to build really high towers where you put people in. That's fine. That's how you house people. So in this phase of really rapid population growth, wasn't matched by equally fast infrastructure growth. Infrastructure growth has been lagging behind massively. Right now, since we have probably two, three, maybe even four years of slow population intake or migration intake in Australia. Australia stands a real chance to play catch up on the infrastructure front. And this is not just helpful because we finally get our cities functioning and operating smoother again, but it is also important because we we will find ourselves at the end of the pandemic with a reasonably high, not shockingly high, but reasonably high unemployment rate. That means we need to get people to work. And the easiest way to create jobs at scale for a government is to invest heavily into infrastructure. So that's exactly why we need infrastructure growth to occur right now. We need to play catch-up. And there's a fair chance that this is finally going to happen. Just from a budget perspective, all levels of government already pushed infrastructure programs forward. They committed to spending the money. So if we play our cards right in Australia... We got three, four years to make Australia a significantly more livable place for everyone.
0: I'm also wondering whether that net overseas migration is a a little bit of a pause while we're keeping our borders closed. I suspect Australia looks pretty great from the rest of the world at the moment, so we might find that uh, migration bounces right back as soon as
1: it can. Migration will most certainly bounce back as soon as we open the borders. Should remember that migration largely fits into two camps, which are international students. International students are cash cows deluxe. So you wouldn't want to give up on, on international students. They create so much money. They revitalize or vitalize the central business districts where the unis are tend to be located. So it's the jackpot plus one in six international students on average becomes a permanent resident later in life. That means we get a permanent resident who has been educated to our standards and we didn't need to pay for their first 25 years of life which tend to be a very expensive part of the life cycle where you cost the state money. And you essentially take on a new worker just when they start paying uh, taxes. And they will be paying reasonably high taxes because they are well-educated workers. That's the general argument in favor of international students coming back. Skilled migrants will come back to whatever degree we let them in. There is no argument that I find plausible to say that the attractiveness of Australia for international migrants would have been diminished uh, over the pandemic. That that, that wouldn't have happened. Within Australia, people might say, ah, maybe Melbourne, who was, uh, of course, the the, the town that stayed in lockdown for the longest period. Maybe some people uh, read articles that said, ah, that will really hurt Melbourne in the long run. I don't think so. I actually think, funnily enough, that this is going to be uh, playing out in Melbourne's favour. Simply because, internationally speaking, if you read about Australia in the pandemic, the narrative that is spun uh, the most often is there is a city of 5 million people. It's called Melbourne. It was used to have the pandemic. And now it doesn't. They got rid of it. What a miracle. That is a way more powerful story than... Brisbane, a city of 3 million people that never had the pandemic. It doesn't have the nice uh, comeback element there. So overall, skilled migration will come back. So we will see high population growth. That's it. The big risk is that we go back to pre-pandemic growth patterns where everybody moves into just three, four, five cities. And we build ourselves into a corner where there are lots of traffic bottlenecks and traffic becomes really annoying. Hopefully we don't do this. Hopefully we really take the 20-minute city argument more seriously. Will we live in more local communities within our capital cities?
0: At various times, government have had a decentralisation agenda, if you like, a recognition of our high reliance on a small number of large cities. Do you see this as an opportunity for the Wollongongs, the Geelong, the larger regional centres to become genuine alternatives to the capital cities, or is is that an opportunity and and what role would that play in helping us, but in
1: sustainable and and livable community ways? Absolutely. So when we talk about decentralisation of population growth, we really want to spread the load a bit better. Over the last five to 10 years, we had around 80% of population growth just occurring in the five largest cities. That is nonsense. So we need to spread the load better. But when we talk about really pushing Wollongong, pushing Geelong, pushing Newcastle, we're not talking about making those cities the size of Adelaide or or Brisbane. That's not what we're talking about. We want to just grow the population base there at whatever rate it is. That largely depends on the housing stock that can be made available there. It's not that easy to build decent housing at scale. And if you only add poor housing stock, The motivation for people to move there is diminishing. So there is always an element of build it and they will come in in regional towns. And as long as your regional town is connected to a capital city, either by a quick drive or train ride or flight, your town will have a boom decade Ahead, And it is up to you, if you are a business, to, you know, make profit from this. And it is up to you, if you are a NGO, if you are a government department, to manage this well, to understand that growth is happening and not to act surprised. You know, there are towns like Ballina in New South Wales, a reasonably small town, uh, driving distance to Byron easy. It has a good airport. So it's connected well to Melbourne, Sydney even, and not just to Brisbane. So that's wonderful. These are boom towns that we're going to see over the next couple of years. As long as housing stock is going to be uh, made available there, nothing is going to hold those towns back.
0: I wonder if I can shift our focus to the workforce now. Tell us a bit about what you're seeing, both leading up to the pandemic and what the pandemic is resulting in. What does this mean for the future of
1: our workforces? Well, to start you on that track, I, I want to take you back to my favorite day of the year. Actually, only comes around every five years, Census Night, Census Day. And on Census Day, we were all asked to write our job into the little box. And our friends at the ABS put uh, our answers into one of 1,300 categories. That's the number of jobs that officially exist in Australia. Each of those jobs has a skill level, a number from one to five attached it. That indicates how much formal training you must have gone through to do this job. Skill level one jobs require university level education. Skill level three jobs are the tradies, the manufacturing workers, where you need a certificate to work in. Skill level five jobs are unskilled labor. You learn everything you need on the job. No formal qualification needed. The higher your job is in the skill level pyramid, if you will, uh, the more money you make. That's essentially how we remunerate. There are a couple of exceptions. If you run your own plumbing business and you're skill level three worker, you will earn much more than a skill level one midwife, for example. But overall, the skill level story just says, get educated, earn more money. If we think about Australia, the Australian workforce, many people picture a perfect bell curve. We're sure there are a couple of rich folks, sure the a couple of poor folks, but essentially we're all part of the middle class. We have middle class incomes, middle class dreams. That is the Australia of the 1970s that you're thinking of. By now, the Australian workforce looks much more like a letter U, where we have a shrinking middle class, shrinking number of skill level three workers, tradies, manufacturing workers, and we have vastly growing skill level one workers doesn't surprise us because we hear a lot about Australia becoming a knowledge economy. But we also grow many, many skill level four jobs, low skilled uh, jobs. And that's a problem because in the very expensive capital cities that we're operating in, on a skill level four income, you can't really get ahead. That, that doesn't work. So we really, as a society, want to push more and more people from lower skilled jobs into skill level three, into middle skilled jobs. And that's hard to do. That's hard to achieve. We can do this. I mentioned infrastructure earlier. If we get serious about infrastructure growth, we need workers to build all the stuff that we are willing to pay for, and these are young people that we are just upskilling right now. So hopefully the infrastructure catch up that we're playing right now will lead to us taking people out of low paid skill level four and five jobs and pushing them through taves which must be universally free, by the way, into skill level three jobs. That would be the single best thing that could occur in Australia over the next couple of years. Because if you operate on a completely hollowed out workforce, social cohesion is a big, big issue. Rich and poor are too far apart to have anything in common, really, especially if you run a a very atheistic country as we do. I wonder if you could help
0: our listeners to sort of place themselves on that U curve. You mentioned the one through to five. Can you give us a sort of bearing of under that definition? What puts you in each of those groups? And I suppose, what do we know about those groups that are at the the lower end of the U? Particularly feeding into your comment about how we how we yeah.
1: build that middle up again. If you went to university, you have a skill level one job. <laughs> it's almost certain. And by now, skill level one jobs, if you look at the jobs that we created over the last decade, just the net new jobs that we created over the last decade, two thirds of the jobs fall into skill level one. This is why we ran such a huge uh, migration program, because we couldn't have possibly filled all those jobs with the people that are currently in the country. It doesn't work. And we have actually lost jobs in skill level three, which are the manufacturing jobs which are the trades jobs. So it's really the big construction real estate boom that kept the sector somewhat afloat. But anything that you can do in order to keep tradies employed, to up the necessity of, uh, of the economy for skill level three workers is great, which is why the home builder program, for example, which has been pushed recently, which has been touted by the left sometimes as, oh, this is just subsidizing home renovations for the rich. Yes, maybe it is, but it is creating the very important skill level three jobs. So I don't care if the rich get nice bedrooms out of this. The most important thing is that we employ people in the shrinking middle class, much more important issue. Oh, and the social housing investment is another one of my favorite topics because housing every, everyone doesn't matter if you are a fund manager or if you are, you know, a sales assistant at a shop. You will complain about the cost of housing because housing is expensive in Australia, period. Housing for skill level four and five workers is absolutely out of the question. They will never ever be able to afford a house. In order to fix the market for the lower end of the income spectrum, we need the state to step up its game in social housing, period. There's no no way around this. We then of course need to be smart about what type of social housing are we building? How are we actually building this? Is the way that we dense, you know, build densification at the moment, is that actually desirable? When we take a quarter acre block, we bulldoze it, and we put six poorly built, crappy, unlivable townhouses on it, that's not benefiting anyone. You know, that's just making a quick buck because under a pressurized market where there is a housing shortage, whatever you build, even if it's crap, gets sold. So that's a problem that we have in the moment. If we talk about intergenerational wealth, we are building poor housing stock. That means we're not building intergenerational wealth. We want to actually look at some poor countries that built decent, beautiful brick houses for millennia or centuries at least. That makes sure that even the poor live in decent accommodation in the next 10 years. As a rich country uh, that we are, we should have done this. We should do this. We should actually, and here I am asking for more red tape. We should strengthen regulation, building codes, in order to make sure that we build top quality housing that has a higher lifespan. Lots of the housing that we're building now doesn't isn't even expected to last for 25 years, which is madness. We need to think in centuries if we build housing, but we're not.
0: I'd love to hear more generally, just given your reflections, given the the work that you're doing reflecting all the time about demographic and, and social and economic changes coming from things, what are your observations about the way in which government is engaging with demographic trends and demographic information? Does it do it well or
1: what could it do to do it better? I've seen a big trend in recent years to double down on research and evaluation in the sector because lots of the things feel really nice. You can do lots of stuff in education, in domestic violence, in whatever your field is, and it just feels kind of good. But are you burning money? Do you actually have anything to show for? This needs to be done because we are spending public money. It's irresponsible to not be smart about how you spend your money. Do not worry about potentially larger overheads because you need to uh, invest into a research and evaluation manager. It is totally worth it. And I would argue that it is socially or morally irresponsible to not do this. Your gut feeling, whether you're doing decent work or not, is absolutely worthless. It sounds brutal, but you cannot rely on your... On your gut feeling, you need to be smart about how to help as many people as you can in your sector, whatever it is. And data is one point for this. Big businesses, we're talking, we're talking about, you know, ASX 200 type businesses, local governments uh, that I've been working with in my, in my consulting work. Lots of them are reasonably good at collecting data. But i are not using it. It's a weird thing that people kind of understand. Yeah, we should collect data. That's the fair thing to do. But then what the hell do you do with it? How do we actually get the most out of it? How do I match my data collection with publicly available data from the ABS, for example, so that I can, that I can make meaningful comparisons? Who do I hire? Either permanent staff or what kind of consultancy do I get on board in order to understand what this data means for me? We could do so much uh, good if we do this, particularly considering that in Australia, we are blessed with excellent public data that we can use to uh, either to inform public purpose organizations or to add on to your data that, that you already collected and make the most out of it. So that's my call for everyone in the sector, to be more data-driven and to not be afraid to use data and to to deeply mistrust your own gut feeling, whether you are doing something useful
0: or not. You probably talked about data on two levels, didn't you? Um, In terms of what you're doing day to day, is it having the impact that that you're wanting it to? There's also a sort of, I suppose, a higher level of, are we getting the types of services or investments? Are we aware of the shifts that are happening in the profile of the populations that we serve? It's that external data coming in and helping us understand that. I know that's done routinely in, in, say, land use planning or other areas like that, but some other areas in terms of social services or education or healthcare, it's less developed as understanding those population changes.
1: Yes. And so quite often in the public sector, you find, or you know, public purpose, NGO sector, you find people wanting to help. That's why they went into this job. They want to help other humans and they want to help on one level. That's where you see, that's where you feel the need. Sometimes strategic, systemic work is much more valuable than helping the individual, but it will be invisible. So you do need people who really look at data from a from a higher plane in order to help out, even first and foremost, to pick those problems and then to help solve those problems from a systemic lens. And it's a hard sell because it doesn't feel as nice. If you're solving problems on a spreadsheet, preventing something, that's not fun. It's much more, more fulfilling for an individual to help somebody who is in need right now. It is much easier and much more efficient to prevent that need from occurring in the first place. And therefore, of course, we need tons of research to understand whatever your individual issue is and then to be bold enough to implement a systemic change before the problems actually um, you know, manifested themselves.
0: We've all been through the, this great time of experimentation and learning. From your vantage point, what's one thing that you hope comes out of this that has positive benefits for us for a long time to come?
1: Let me answer this from the millennial perspective. This is a generation that was always bagged over the last couple of, of years of a generation that had it to good. That doesn't understand what it is to suffer. You know, you can't solve real problems. This is a generation that was hit the hardest by the pandemic. This is a generation that, without complaining on a large scale, at least took on the burden of losing their jobs, of staying home. This is a generation that is in the life stage where you want to be out finding a partner, where you need to travel and discover the world and discover yourself. All of these things, they step back, they put this on hold in order to help the older generations that are much more vulnerable to be hurt really badly if they catch the the virus. That is a great image to have of yourself as a generation. And this will really show a generation that it can solve issues. And I do think that this kind of like growing self-confidence, this changing view of oneself as a generation and as an individual actually can put us in in a more noble position as millennials in Australia.
0: Our guest today has been Simon Kustin maha Simon, thanks so much for speaking with us.
1: Thank you for having me.